Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, founder and now less often the host of uh, this show. Um, here today with Dr. Kara Poland, who joins me to launch and kick off our special series on addiction medicine, where we hope, um, with the help of various experts and interested educators around the country, to provide a broad overview of um, addiction-related science, medicine, clinical advice, the sorts of things you ought to get in med school, but you kind of don't. Um, and the reason for that being addiction is one of those things that touches on every specialty in medicine. It really crosses specialties. It's an exciting field. Really stoked to put this stuff out there and work with uh, some of the people who have also expressed an interest in teaching med students. And that is chiefly Dr. Poland. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you, Dr. Beeman. It's such a pleasure to be here. I uh, really enjoy working with students and being involved in undergraduate medical education. You're absolutely right. The average medical school only has between two and 10 hours of training in addiction medicine throughout all four years of medical school. So like one clinic day in a lecture? It pretty much. And like, let's think about it. Did you have more than one clinic day in a lecture on treating persons with diabetes? No, that was every, it seemed like every day, stuff like that, you know? Doesn't it? And so what we know about substance use disorders, it affects one in seven Americans. And these are the types of things that get me fired up and excited to go to work every day. So I am a board certified and fellowship trained addiction medicine expert. That fellowship training is actually kind of new. So fellowships just came to be in the United States in addiction medicine, which is different from addiction psychiatry, in uh, 2012. So I did one of the first fellowships, and now they're kind of all across the nation. And I ended up moving from Boston back to Michigan, where I'm originally from, and I'm now a uh, assistant professor at Michigan State University in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Though I am not an OBGYN, I am an internal medicine doctor by training, which brings me to another really cool thing about addiction, and that's that we are a multidisciplinary subspecialty, which means you can actually come to addiction medicine from any other specialty uh, from any other primary board. So it's kind of a, a neat group and, and of people that do all, um, all kind of come around this underserved, um, under-recognized disease space. Yeah, totally. And now looking at your CV, uh, it's 14 pages long. So, you know, you mentioned 
be, being an assistant professor in the department of OBGYN here at MSU. But uh, on those 14 pages, what are some of the uh, things you're most proud of uh, in your academic or other uh, career here? I am probably most proud of some of my advocacy efforts on both a state and national scale. So for instance, um, when I moved back to Michigan seven years ago, there was a one-year time limit on life-sustaining medication that we use in addiction and medication called buprenorphine. And what we know from the evidence is that people who are on this medication for greater than a year do better than people who are on the medication for a year or less. So we knew that the policy didn't match the evidence. And so I spent years, literally six of them, changing those policies. And some of it was stepwise. The first step was uh, eliminating the one-year lifetime amount that people could get buprenorphine for. And so once we eliminated that, then we started working on eliminating this thing called prior authorization, which I'm sure um, you guys have probably talked about before, but it's kind of getting permission from the insurance agents, from the insurance company to pay for and to cover whether that's a test or a medication. And so it can be a barrier to care because there's paperwork involved, there's approval processes involved. And so we um, eliminated that. And then finally, last year, we made it so that for persons that have Medicaid in the state of Michigan, there's no prior authorization, there's no lifetime limit. We made it really easy for doctors and other prescribers to prescribe this medication and get somebody started on it. And those kind of large, broad-based advocacy things are things that I know are ways I've had an impact on thousands of people. And when we think about things like the number needed to treat, the number needed to treat with buprenorphine to save a life, to prevent somebody from dying. Seven? Four. Four. Wow. Four. I know. Isn't that amazing? I mean, have you ever had somebody come in and thank you for prescribing them insulin? No, no. 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 Have you ever had somebody come in and thank you for prescribing them buprenorphine? Yes. Yeah. And so people come in and they really, like, how often do people appreciate a prescription like that? They don't. All right. Uh, I'm getting so excited. All right. Well, I know. It's exciting. Well, all right. We're going to get into this and, and convince at least half of you to go into addiction medicine. Um, but first, what we usually do is kind of go through a USMLE style practice question. Um, this particular episode is going to be an overview kind of about the field and addiction as a um, disease state in general. Um, but our plans, just to let everyone know, are um, to go through some neurobiology and subsequent um, uh, episodes, the pharmacology of various substances or their um, antidotes, reversal agents, and uh, medications used to treat them. Uh, so medication-assisted uh, treatment things. And then uh, just spend some time on specific substances. Opioids is a big one. We hope to get to marijuana, nicotine, benzodiazepines, all the big ones, behavioral addictions, and some special populations. But today, overview. So we're going to start with this question, which I will read, and then we'll go through the answers. Good? Sounds perfect. All right. So a 34-year-old G1P1 presents to the emergency department in a lethargic state. An opioid overdose is suspected, and the patient is given naloxone. She's admitted to an inpatient medicine service for further observation. Which of the following is the most appropriate first question for the physician to ask during her initial assessment? 
All right, we got four choices here. One, A, can you tell me why you overdosed? B, I can see that you've been through quite a bit in the last few hours. I'm here to help. Can you tell me what happened? C, I can see you have an opioid addiction. Would you like to start Suboxone, which is a combination of buprenorphine and uh, naloxone? And then D, I've read the report from the ER. I'd like to interview your wife and other family members. Would you be willing to sign this consent form? All right. So hopefully in listening to those, uh, the most open-ended one will stand out as the correct answer. And that was basically to reflect the patient's experience and then invite them to tell their story, right? So B, I can see You've been through quite a bit in the last few hours. I'm here to help. Can you tell me what happened? Why is that a good response? I mean, it seems intuitive to me, but uh, I'm sure there's a reason why approaching things like that is more helpful rather than less helpful. Anytime we talk to patients, whether it's somebody with a substance use disorder or otherwise, we want to get some engagement from them. We want to make them feel like we are trustworthy people. We come in with our white coats, whether they're on us or they're proverbial, and we come in and we know the answer. And so getting them to understand that we care about who they are and what their thoughts are is really important as a physician in general. Um, and so I think the the reason this question is written the way it is and the, and the reason the answer is the right answer is because it gives them an opportunity to share maybe what led to that, maybe a little bit more about it than just the overdose or just starting treatment, which are kind of A and C. And then answer D, I mean, I really wouldn't like that if somebody came in my room and said that to me. I just want to talk to your husband and other people about you rather than hearing from you who you are. That doesn't sound, that just doesn't feel good. That one seems like a pretty easy no. Yeah. And I mean, this is a less complicated question, less neurobiology, less, uh, you know, some of the minutiae you have to remember for step one. But um, I think this is really an invitation to uh, dive into um, what I'd like to cover today, especially. And that is, is, you know, what, what is, what is addiction, um, you know, and why addiction medicine for you? And why should the students consider addiction medicine or at least learn something about it um, and apply it to their specialties? So let's start with what is addiction? Well, addiction is um, a f- newer field of medicine that wasn't really recognized despite it being around for forever. I mean, we know we have references to substance use from Hippocrates and challenges that uh, people had in ancient uh, times about uh, around substances. So that's something to be aware of, is that this isn't something that's new from the human condition, but it's new to our world. So addiction medicine was recognized as a specialty in 2016. Mm -mm. So that's not that long ago. When we think about it, when we think about the fact that there's this whole workforce of cardiologists and endocrinologists and OBGYNs and specialties that have been around for for you know a really long time for decades and in hundreds of years. Um, so I found that really exciting when I came into addiction. We also know that 
so many people are affected by addiction that if you aren't thinking about it, if you aren't considering it, whether you're an addiction doctor or not, it's going to affect your patients. So we know that for all comers, for all surgeries, one in six people will end up on chronic opioids 90 days post-surgery. That's a wild number of people, and that's something that any surgeon should be aware of so that when they prescribe opioids, they use what we call REM strategies, risk evaluation and mitigation strategies to reduce that risk, to make it so that fewer of their patients end up on those long-term opioids so that they can better care for their patients. We also know that people that go into surgery have poor outcomes if they're smoking, if there's alcohol involved, if there's other substances of misuse. And so just having that awareness and building that as a student is really important to be able to take care of your patients, no matter what fields you go into. I also really just enjoy the patient population. Like I mentioned before, um, we don't, I don't see too many areas of medicine where the patients are just so thankful to have a relationship, so thankful to have you be kind and caring to them in ways that they aren't in other fields. Absolutely. And I, I think the, the listeners know, I, I've often said, you know, I, was, I had this uh, existential crisis, um, quarter life crisis when I was trying to decide on my specialty. Um, and I was between OBGYN and psychiatry. And looking back, um, it's complicated, but I kind of wish I'd done psychiatry. And uh, now that I have been board certified for uh, almost five years, I've been out a while, um, you really can't go back and do psychiatry. But addiction has a lot of overlap with psychiatry. And so for my part, I actually just um, uh, started working as uh, the medical director for a, a level one opioid treatment program. Uh, I had been in the military for like four years and I saw one, I, I swear, one urinalysis that was positive for an illicit substance during that time. Um, prior to that in, in uh, residency and, and then when I got out, you know, it's, uh, you see one in four years that isn't positive in, in certain patient populations. But the patients, man, the, they're just like the coolest people. I, I don't understand why they are treated so poorly. I, I mean, I literally cannot understand this. And I, in doing this sort of work, um, helping people with opioid problems uh, for the past like six, seven months, it's, it's incredibly rewarding. It's one of the, it's restored my love for medicine, frankly. So you're not the first person to say something like that, which is what's really cool. So what we what I found is I talk to more people that are doing addiction work, whether it's, you know, as an addiction specialist or as a piece of their primary care clinic, is that they were thinking about leaving medicine. They weren't sure what their path was in medicine. They were not feeling great about it. And then they started treating patients with substance use disorders. Um, I think one challenge that we often have when we are not actually treating these patients is that we are only seeing uncontrolled substance use disorder. If every person with hypertension that walked into a primary care clinic had a blood pressure of 180 over 90 and the 
doctor had no medication to prescribe, didn't know how to talk to that patient, didn't know what to say to that patient and said, you know what? You really just need to get your blood pressure under control and sent them on their way. How satisfied would they be as a provider? I wouldn't be either. So when you get the tools to treat addiction, then you start to, you start to see these people's lives change and you start to see some of these things happening in, the, in their world that's really rewarding for us as physicians. And I think that that's something that reels people in and brings them back for more. What, why are patients with addictions stigmatized so greatly? It's, it's actually a very United States-centric phenomenon. We don't see this as much in other countries. Some of it is we, we have kind of two systems of medical care. We have the traditional medical care system, what we think of as medicine, the hospitals, the outpatient clinics, the community clinics, the, the, the places that we think of when we think healthcare. And then in addiction, we have this other system. We have the AA meetings, the NA meetings, the recovery houses. These out, they're not usually affiliated with the hospitals. Occasionally, they'll have some sort of loose affiliation. And we know that only about a third of these other clinics actually even offer medication. So we still have this very um, built into our belief system that addiction is a choice, that people um, should be able to just quit cold turkey. And if they can't, it's something that's wrong with them. They don't want to. We have this idea that you have to hit rock bottom. There's no such thing as rock bottom. We need to offer people treatment anytime that they're willing to hear about it. Yeah. What's rock bottom for uncontrolled hypertension? Uh, an incapacitating stroke, um, you know, diabetic coma for someone with diabetes. <laughs> like why, why apply that? But I, but I guess to the, how to ask this, we are in medicine, I think pretty well sold on a disease model for addiction now, but is it your experience that patients don't necessarily have the phenomenological experience of addiction as a straight up disease not really sure what I'm asking here. So if you want to just invent uh, a question and answer it, that'd be great. Yeah. So, um, so I think that sometimes with addiction, we have this disease model in mind and we know that there are neurobiological circuits and we know that addiction sits in the nucleus accumbens and it sends messages to the prefrontal cortex and that there's there's these pathways going on and when they get disrupted we have a substance use disorder and we can wrap our heads around that but when that patient walks into the room and they display behaviors that are difficult, that are egodystonic for us, that's really hard. And so there are still patients, and I've been doing this for a decade now, there are still patients that I have to like take a deep breath before I walk in the room and remember that those behaviors that kind of push my buttons are really just a symptom of their substance use disorder. And if I can remind myself and put my head in that frame of reference that this behavior is a symptom of their disease, then it's no longer about the patient and me. 
It's about how do I help this person with their disease state? And I think that's just something that we struggle with as medicine to overcome. And then our patients, they come in with all the guilt and all the shame and all the emotions that come with being a person that's had a substance use disorder because they've often come into the emergency department or gone to see another primary care doctor or seen their OB. And those other providers, those other physicians haven't known what to do. So they haven't felt like they were treated very well or they, or they haven't felt like they got safe, appropriate care. And so then they come to us and they're expecting more of the same from the house of medicine and overcoming that is really a challenge. Yeah. And, um, well, okay, let's, uh, let's start here. I'm going to read the definition from ASAM, their definition of addiction, uh, just so we're on the, the same page. And this kind of encapsulates how uh, medical students and, and those in medicine should probably think about to have the framework um, to, to uh, put into how they um, act and, and approach addiction-related patients or subjects and uh, patients who have substance use disorders or other addictions. So definition, addiction is, quote, a treatable chronic medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experiences. People with addiction use substances or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences. Prevention efforts and treatment approaches for addiction are generally as successful as those for other chronic diseases. Man, if we could get people to grasp that, I feel like that would be a huge uh, step forward in terms of um, uh, improving the culture of medicine and uh, the way it thinks about addiction. Do you agree? Absolutely. So the other thing we know about doctors is once they finish residency, they become kind of stuck in their ways, right? Yeah. So that's where medical students really have such a huge impact. Um, people in medical school are still going to hear the word substance abuse. That diagnosis hasn't existed for 10 years. 10 years. It hasn't even been a diagnosis, but you're going to hear that all the time in your rotations and remembering that it's not substance abuse. It's a substance use disorder. Why that distinction? So that distinction is really important because we have unconscious bias and we have unconscious bias in all sorts of things. And so when we, when we actually refer to somebody as a person with substance abuse, we provide lower quality care than if we refer to that same person as a person with a substance use disorder. And so when I talk to my colleagues, I say, I know none of us want to do that. So let's raise the bar and let's use safe language for our patients that allows us to provide better care. But isn't this kind of just like feel good, pie in the sky, wishful thinking? I mean, these patients just straight up choose to, you know, engage in 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 getting high. That's all they want. They're just trying to game the system. And I could repeat other things that uh, are said all the time in medicine. But am I, am I wrong if that's my um, kind of assumption or assumptions? Absolutely. I think that, that I, under, I absolutely understand where that comes from. And I absolutely understand those emotions behind it because uncontrolled substance use is really frustrating to treat. And when you don't have any tools to help you do that, 
that makes it even harder. So when you come out of medical school and you've had 10 hours of training and everyone around you has only had the same 10 hours of training, if you were lucky, you might've been at the one of medical schools that only did two hours. My goodness, it's going to be hard to treat. Where we, you know, we compare the hundreds of hours of training you've had in diabetes or in hypertension, you can understand where that knowledge basis is really, is really, really different. Um, what's fascinating about the adolescent brain is the way that it changes and develops over time. The average age of first use of an illicit substance is 12 years old. Wow. I don't know about you, Dr. Beeman, but when I was 12, I wasn't thinking about the consequences of my actions now that I'm in my late 30s. Nope, me either. So I, when that person comes in and sees me, I always remind myself that flip of the coin, I could have been the kid that tried the alcohol at the party. I could have been the kid that ate an edible. And so how do those decisions that we made when we were an adolescent and our frontal cortex wasn't developed, we didn't have the executive function to be able to make these decisions and understand the complexity of the consequences when we were 12 years old. Our brain literally wasn't developed enough to do that. So I can't blame my patients for something that is a biological disadvantage that they have. Yeah, well, let's get into that. So substance use disorder, I, um, that distinction's important. I, I also presume because the there is no exact like um, uh, clinical picture or stereotypical archetypal addiction patients. Like, I mean, who who is the the quintessential patient with an opioid use disorder. Um, it touches across all socioeconomic, you know, classes and, and ages, life experiences, correct? Yeah. You, me, my neighbors, my kids, you know, my kids' parents, friends, my, you know, the, the people that I walk by it. A lot of it's our fault too, as a, as a, a moral community uh, in, in medicine, because we, you know, also maybe didn't consider the consequences of our actions. Uh, we've known opioids are, um, you know, uh, uh, addicting, um, but perhaps got a little too fast and loose. Um, and I think that's kind of borne out in the the popular discussions of these things that these sort of um, fifth vital sign idea, you know, got to treat people's pain um, to make it go to a zero out of 10 um, kind of led to people like you had said, who have surgery having longer than, you know, 90 days of um, say opiates uh, to, to treat a, a surgery, which uh, or surgical pain, post-operative pain that, that uh, really just creates a bigger problem. I, I like, I can't believe how many people are just like, Oh wow, that guy looks like, you know, he, he could be the, you know, the, the clerk at Walgreens or my banker or, you know, whatever. Um, oh, wow. This dude has, you know, uh, three kids and he's trying to provide for his family and he's 
lost uh, a shit ton of stuff in his life because uh, he got in a car wreck and got on opiates and then he got cut off from them after being on high doses and then started to withdraw and felt violently ill. And so he started buying some opiates off the streets um, from friends or borrowing, borrowing quote them uh, from family members. But then that got really expensive and he had to turn to heroin, uh, which is all fentanyl uh, just to prevent himself from getting violently ill. Like it's, it, it blows my mind how it seems easy it can be for, for people to become physiologically dependent on opioids specifically. Um, and then when they try to stop the, the, I guess the motivation they have to avoid the withdrawal syndrome um, seems to be, you know, almost insurmountable to, to some people. Yeah. Well, what does withdrawal feel like? We always read in the textbooks, it feels like flu-like symptoms, right? That's what all the textbooks say. What they don't want to- Looks really terrible. It's, yeah, it's terrible. And what do you want to do when you have the flu? Uh, nothing, honestly. Yeah, just- Yeah, crawl in your bed in a dark room, cover your head with the covers and sleep it off, right? Yeah, but you can't sleep. I don't, you know, they- Right. That's the thing about opioids. Opioid withdrawal also has the worst insomnia. So you've got the flu, but you can't sleep. It sucks. Yeah. When I have the flu, I am reaching for Motrin. I am reaching for Sudafed. I am reaching for those things that will make me feel better. Like almost without like even being able to think of anything else, of doing anything else. And so the same thing happens for these patients. And when we think about opioids, what are our endogenous opioids? Endorphins, right? Endorphins. So the same thing that makes us feel good is the very thing that is not able to be effective in somebody who's having withdrawal. So they not only do they feel like they have the flu, they literally don't have the chemical to make them feel good, which is endorphins. Now, in, in my experience with uh, treating patients with uh, substance use disorders, uh, whether in triage in the OB setting where I might not necessarily be addressing that um, directly, the the story keeps coming out. And it seems to me that for some people, um, like, like when I had my wisdom teeth out or I had a surgery during residency, I took Percocet or, or Vicodin or something. And I just, it made me nauseated. So I'm like, meh, I, you know, I'm not, really going to take this. It's not helping. So whatever. But to some people, it's like they take an opioid and it's like a flip switches. Um, is that borne out in terms of a scientific paradigm or heuristic, this kind of switch flippy idea? Yeah. So we, we hear that all the time with all different substances. So it's, it's the person who comes in and says, if I don't have a drink of alcohol, I can't go into social situations. Like I have to have alcohol in order to be able to converse with other people, or I have to, you know, I, I'm just so wound up that I, I can't relax without smoking a joint to, you know, do my daily living. It's, it's the, those, those types of situations. Often, often you'll hear the story that the, when they initially started using, they felt normal. They understood how other people 
we're able to socialize, we're able to get through a whole day of school without having an upset stomach, without feeling, you know, like they were overwhelmed and, and couldn't function without needing to go home and just like hide from the world after, after a day at school. Because often these are, again, 12, 15-year-old adolescents that we're talking about um, when they first start using. So when we when we, so that's often kind of the switch that get, get that gets flipped. We don't really know about maybe if there's something about their endogenous opioid system that is under um, functioning or, or not releasing enough um, endorphins to kind of get them through those normal situations. Um, but there is some evidence and it's mostly clinical experience that, you know, we, we talk about, but I don't, I don't have a study to point you to um, that when we have people who've been on, on buprenorphine based products, the trade name is Suboxone, but when we have people who've been on buprenorphine for a, a long period of time and they are tapering down at their request, um, when we get down to real low doses, they just have this, almost crippling depression or anhedonia that hits them where they just feel like they can't function. And just that little, you know, one or two milligram dose compared to an eight to 16 milligram dose that's needed for treatment of addiction is what they need to be able to function. So there seems to be some amount of an opioid deficiency that that plays a role in that. And we do know that there are kind of some genetic underpinnings to addiction that somebody like you or like my husband who gets nauseous when they take opioids, they're not at big at a great risk for getting opioid use disorder because they take an opioid and they're like, oh, can I, where's the Motrin? I'd rather be in pain. Somebody like me if I take an opioid, I feel like I can clean the whole house and, and, you know, and then some do 10 loads of laundry and go grocery shopping all in the next two hours. Um, so I have that switch. So that, that's an interesting, um, this might, I think, uh, potentially be confusing to people because if you take an opioid, aren't you going to be like chilled out, tired, like it's going to depress your respiratory system. Your mind's going to be like fuzzy and relaxed. And yet a lot of patients who take opioids say the reason I, I, you know, if I take, um, fentanyl, then I've got like an hour, um, to get up and clean my house. Um, if I don't, then I'm just like glued to the chair or, you know, sitting there shaking and, uh, puking with abdominal pain and sweating and all this stuff. What, why, why are opioids activating? So the brain actually, likes to reuse the same thing for multiple different functions in different areas. So in the respiratory center of the brain, opioids act to depress respiratory drive, right? And that's what people die of is they die of an, when they die of an opioid overdose, they stop breathing. But in the nucleus accumbens and the pleasure reward centers of the brain, they actually act as activators, um, so when you had the, you had like a blocking effect to the activation where you had this negative, I fast reaction of, I feel like I'm getting sick. It's making me nauseous. I don't want this. I don't want this feeling. And that was kind of a stronger emotional response, but somebody who has it where it feels like it turns a switch on, they're getting a, a bigger response to that endorphin effect of opioids where it makes it feel good. 
So it's, it's about that kind of that, chemo- that balance of your body's response to the substance. And we probably don't know uh, enough to be able to say that, um, you know, this person's going to respond with kind of a, or have kind of an addictive response to this medicine, uh, this drug, this substance, but won't to this one, will to that one. Um, is that on the horizon? For instance, like, I'm not going to get addicted to opiates, um, but could I get addicted to, um, I don't know, cocaine or methamphetamine if I took those? Um, uh, nicotine, is it possible that we in the future would be able to say, your genetic predisposition says you're a person who should be careful, if not uh, just totally avoid alcohol, but you should be fine with opioids or something of that nature. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we're, we have some genetic stuff coming out in addiction. There's certainly, you know, genetic influences, there's environmental influences. If you never get exposed to opioids, you're not going to develop an opioid use disorder. And then there's the epigenetics of kind of what you're, what you're exposed to in utero. Um, and we don't really, that changes kind of the methylation of your genes. And we, it, it's not really one-to-one. We don't really know much about that. That's kind of growing. Um, but we do know that there are some genes that predict risk for substance use disorder. So some people's family tree kind of lights up with folks that have a substance use disorder. Um, we, we know the gene for alcohol use. And so that particular gene is um, male-to-male transmission is stronger than male-to-female or female-to-child. So if dad has an alcohol use disorder, his son is more likely to have an alcohol use disorder than his daughter. Interesting. Even with this, even if they both have that same gene. What's even more fascinating, which is like, which is why this is hard to kind of give a concrete answer to, is if grandpa has a substance, has an alcohol use disorder, and dad sees how alcohol negatively affected grandpa. Are you I'm with, with you. me? So dad sees alcohol negatively affected grandpa dad doesn't drink yep grandson dad's son has it worse but is now at increased risk because he didn't see those negative effects because dad didn't really drink and so he doesn't have that same like risk avoidance i'm not going to drink because i know all the bad things it does to you yeah and so now grandson's at higher risk. So it's really that interplay, right? Um, and with so much in our world, is that's true. All right. So people can be addicted to all sorts of substances. Um, people talk about um, colloquially, but, but even more and more clinically about like an addiction to uh, food or uh, uh, gambling is a good example of a behavioral addiction. Um, People talk about uh, sex or pornography addiction. Is there a common pathway that links, say, your opioid use disorder and alcohol use and smoking and uh, gambling, anything neurobiological? Gambling is in the DSM-5 under substance use disorders. It's the only one of the behavioral addictions that's been classified um, in that way. The other ones are 
sort of in this nebulous psychiatric category of we're not really sure where you fit in. Um, so it's, um, but gambling addiction is actually in addiction, addictive disorders. There's also, as you mentioned, a lot of uh, information about binge eating disorders, and maybe those should be reclassified into substance use disorders. Um, and so it's, a lot of it depends on in part where the research has been and where we've proven that these brain um, circuits are the same ones that are being affected. But certainly in with gambling addiction, we can, we have definitively said that it fits in with the, with the con- concept of substance use. So does um, person A who has a gambling addiction, person B who has an opioid use disorder, and a person who has no addiction, um, do the two with the uh, addictions have similar nucleus accumbenses um, that are different than the person who doesn't have a an addiction disorder? When we've looked at um, PET scans and we've given either images or short movies of substance use or um, gambling, we see the same pattern of activation in folks that have that use disorder um, in in the brain than when we show them maybe a picture of some, you know, a picture or a movie of something else of, of food or something that they don't that they don't have a use disorder toward. Okay. Well, let me go into just some random, uh, not random, but uh, questions that uh, some various people, various sources asked me to ask, um, as well as some which are my own. One of the things that you see a lot, I think, as a student um, is stigmatizing language surrounding tons of different things, <laughs> honestly. Um there's a lot of burnouts amongst residents and, and attendings. Any advice for how a student might respond to stigmatizing language from, you know, their um, preceptors in like an ER setting? You know, to give an example, a uh, patient comes in who has, uh, you know, kind of obtunded, um, gets their Narcan, wakes up and uh, gets sent home. And then uh, the attending's like, ah. I hate dealing with people like that. Uh, they're the dregs of society or something. Should Do we have a responsibility as uh, students, as members of the, the medical community to say, yo, probably shouldn't say stuff like that. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like I, Yeah. I would probably say something like, mm, I don't know if we should say something like that. <laughs> I'm not going to go like all crazy because it's not going to be effective. But um, right. How might you respond? Should you respond? Thoughts just related to addressing stigmatization when it is actually happening in front of you. I think a lot of times it's relatively unconscious on the part of your attending or on the part of the person around you. And so I, I think asking the questions and and bringing it to the bringing it up and bringing it to the forefront of people's brains is helpful. We don't the the definition of unconscious bias is we don't even realize we're doing it and so so often these are just reflexive responses and they're rooted in really bad coping skills and so if we can help people change that internal monologue then we can help them provide better care and, and 
that's where I think medical students can certainly be helpful. You should never, ever be faulted for asking a question. So asking the question of, could you explain to me why you made that statement? I'm not sure that that fits in with the disease model of addiction that I've been learning in school would be really helpful for me. And so then- Oh, people are going to hate you though. (laughs) Yeah, people are going to hate you though. But I mean, can you find ways to ask the question? Like, can you help me understand why you said that? Um, what, why is, why does this person, why is this person different than the person that came in with diabetes for the, you know, I've seen that person come in two other times this month on the rotation in the emergency room. Right. But you provided that person care and you didn't say the same thing. Yeah, man, we're just, I think there's a, a strong sense of loss of kind of professional identity and, um, the concept of, you know, being a, a, uh, virtuous physician, uh, the idealism that we all go to medicine with gets trained out of us uh, throughout the course of our education. It's uh, it's one of the frustrating things that that I I think that vexes me, um, and and why really I just I would love if inside the boards can contribute to an overall you know revolution, if you will, in um, medicine and medical education to to help stamp out some of these things that do not help us maintain our professional identity and satisfaction and joy from practicing medicine, but also is just kind of like shitty to do as human beings um, to other human beings. Um, Medical school is hard enough. We don't need to make it harder on each other and we don't need to make it harder on ourselves. And if I'm going to do something every day for the next 30 years of my life, then I want to have fun doing that. I want to find joy in doing that. And I think we see that we have this epidemic of burnout and we have this epidemic of dissatisfaction with work-life balance in medicine. And if we're going to change that, then we have to be looking for some of these root causes. And sometimes this judgment and stigma that we walk around with contributes to some of those negative outcomes that we see in our own profession, not in our patients, but in our own selves. And so as people go through medical school, as people go through residency, you know, remembering your why, the reason you're here, reaching out to the people that give you energy and, and doing the, doing a little bit, because I know medical school is busy. I know residency is busy, but doing a little bit of whatever it is that restores you, whether it's exercise, whether it's a craft, whether it's um, reading a book that's not related to school, um, whatever that is, just making sure you carve out that 30 minutes to maintain the me inside of this training is really important. And I know it's so easy for me to stand here on the other side and say, and when you've got that exam coming up and you've got all these other pressures and you've got step one and you're trying to figure it out, you know, give yourself a little bit of slack because you are working hard. You are good enough. And just the fact that you care enough about your patients to want to bring up that stigma, to want to address it and to want to do it differently than maybe you see, maybe that's enough right now. And maybe it's not saying something in the moment. Maybe it's reminding yourself in your internal monologue that that's not the right way to respond to this patient is the best thing that you can do. Yep. Amen. All right. 
Let's talk about the specialty itself and your participation, involvement, and membership in that specialty. So, was there a moment where you were like, you know what, I'm going to do addiction medicine instead of whatever you else you may have been planning to do? If somebody told me when I was a medical student, like they had a glass ball and they could predict the future that I would be doing this 10 years later, I would tell them they were crazy. Like there was no way. I had the, you know, career plan. I knew what I was going to do. Go into residency and internal medicine because I knew a bunch of things I didn't like. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but you kind of have to pick at the end of medical school. And it was like, what's with this? So I just picked and then go into that. And then partway through that, I'm like, okay, I'm going to be the out, I'm going to do outpatient primary care, blah, 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 know what my plan is going to stay in, you know, education, doing a chief year, which is kind of like a stamp of approval that you want to be an educator. And then I went to this conference and it was all about motivational interviewing, which is a technique for engagement. And I was like, I love this. This is so cool. I'm going to save the world. Um, I'm going to have all my patients are going to be super compliant with their, you know, plans of care and life is just going to be fantastic. Um, and I was at this conference and one of the guys there said, Hey, we're starting this fellowship. You should think about doing it. And I was like, no, I'm not doing a fellowship. I have the 10 year plan, right? People. Um, and then I went home and I couldn't get it out of my head. And so I applied for the fellowship and, and did that. So I guess I didn't really know I was going to do this, but I think it's ended up being a really great fit. Um, and so when I, when I, when I talk to medical students one-on-one -on -one and they tell me they don't know what they want to do, my answer is always, that's great because you're going to leave yourself open to be struck and the lightning will strike and you will find your place and that's okay. I always tell people, you got to find your people too. Like if you like are rotating and you're like, I like the subject matter, but like everyone's personality in the field is kind of well, not compatible or doesn't mesh well with yours. Um, it, it, you should seriously rethink doing that specialty. And I would say the same thing for patients too. Like if you don't get along with patients or feel like you could develop a healthy relationship with patients um, in a particular setting, because, you know, doctor-patient relationship. Relationships have certain, you know, uh, standard things that make them healthy, not healthy, energizing, you know, versus life-sucking. If uh, those patients, uh, you don't get along with them, then you should probably consider a different uh, specialty. But what about patients you do get along with? Why, why, would, why would you or me be like, oh, these, these people are so cool? Um, I, you know, really like hearing their stories. I like being able to uh, be somebody, you know, it's kind of a low bar of performance too. You just don't have to be a dick, frankly. And uh, it, it's like puts you worlds ahead. So, so you don't have to work that hard to like put on a face most of the time. It's just, you know, don't be mean. What about you? What um, sort of patient story stands out to where you're like, this is why I'm going to keep doing this. This is why I did it. Oh my gosh. Like, do you have those moments often? You know, it is kind of tell us about that. It is really rare for somebody to go through their whole pregnancy with me, you know, 
six months by the time they get to me, right? And then maybe six months postpartum. So maybe a year if I'm really stretching it out is how long I see a patient for. And it is really rare for them to get through that year long period with me and not thank me for saving their life. When that happens, and I have learners with me all the time, um, when that happens, I always, I always bring it up outside the room. Like, how often do you hear that in general primary care or in general obstetrics? Or how many times has a patient thanked you for saving their life? Because we just had it happen like multiple times in a day here. Um, and that part to me is like, I don't know what could get my mojo going more as an, as a physician, right? Like people literally telling you, you saved their life, like cool beans. Um, it's a lot of fun. Um, but we also, it's also just a, I think a testament to all the work to be done in this field, right? That, that people think it's strange that I'm providing them with medication that is known to save lives. Um, and, and they're like, well, not everybody does this. Um, and, and knowing that they're also scared about that next step after they're done seeing me and after they've had their baby and they've been postpartum uh, for a period of a few months, we, when we start talking about that next care situation, the fear that they have about what that's going to look like and who those providers are going to be and whether or not they're going to be treated with the same amount of kindness and compassion as we strive to provide um, is, is simultaneously uplifting and heart-wrenching. Yeah, totally. Um, have you had a lot of students go into uh, or plan to go into addiction after rotating with you? I get that question a lot um, from students. So what does it mean? Where, how do I do this? What are the pathways to it? It's, it's not one that they've often learned about because it's not as well, there's not as many of us around. Um, so I can say in, in any given you know, class of medical students that I interact with, um, there's, a, there's at least a two to four that express that they want to go into um, addiction treatment. And then sometimes I'll get that call back when they're in residency and, and somebody maybe wasn't thinking it, but worked with me at some point, And now they're starting to think about it. Um, so I, I'd say in every given, in any given year, I have a handful of people that decide they are interested in going into this field. I think a lot of people are like you and me though, um, where it wasn't necessarily on our radar and it, it landed in our laps because of some situation that we, that we had personally or professionally. What do you tell a student who is listening now um, and thinks, oh, I might consider addiction medicine? Like nowadays, uh, how are you going to become an addiction doctor? So you can actually get at it from any specialty. We're a subspecialty of preventive medicine. So, but you have you can't do a residency straight in to addiction. No, you don't. It's a fellowship, so you can do any generalist residency. So you can internal medicine, family medicine. You could, I guess, you could even do it from radiology. Although I'm not sure how that would work exactly, but there's no limit on what your primary residency can be. Um, and then there are programs that are, are through the ACGME, just like any other specialty, uh, to become fellowship trained in addiction medicine. Um, and then that goes through the subspecialty of preventive medicine. But you, it's kind of weird. You do not have to be a preventive medicine doctor 
first to go into addiction medicine, you can kind of like draw a diagonal line from OB or internal medicine over to the preventive medicine subspecialty. Which is sweet. And honestly, there should be more pathways like that in medicine for, um, uh, you know, the lateral movement, uh, in my humble opinion. Uh, and um, uh, as far as fellowships go, uh, how long are they? One to two fellowships are one to two years. Got it. Um, so if I were like, eh, I'm not really sure what I want to do, but I, I'm going to choose peds or internal medicine because there's tons of different fellowship opportunities and I'll figure it out. Um, so I could do three years of say peds or internal medicine. And then at the end of it, plan to do a one or two year fellowship in addiction medicine. That's kind of like a pathway. Yes. And you could just insert any other, you know, OB or psychiatry. Psychiatry can do either addiction psychiatry or addiction medicine. So they can do both. Okay. Too. We'll probably, we should have somebody on who can speak to that distinction and what's, what's different at some point. But all right. How about this one? Uh, is having tattoos more acceptable in the field of addiction medicine than it is in other uh, fields of medicine? I think so. I think. That's what I mean. It's a leading question, but I feel like I've I've gotten so much like instant rapport with patients just because I have uh, uh, quite a few um, visible tattoos, and I'm like, you know, it's not quote professional in a sense, but I can tell you my therapeutic relationships probably hell of a lot stronger just yeah. for that fact. I call them therapeutic f bombs because sometimes, like when yeah. a patient hasn't really opened up to me. I'll drop an F-bomb or I'll, you know, let my pen accidentally, you know, fall on the ground and go, oh shit, and pick it up. And then, you know, go through like almost like a song and dance of like, oh, I can't believe I just swore like that. And even though like I com it was completely purposeful, but just to get that engagement to become a little bit more human, because again, a lot of these people have just been treated poorly by medicine. So they don't trust us. So whether it's your tattoos, whether it's me, you know, dropping a curse word um, or whether it's both or, or a little bit of it all. Right. Um, I think sometimes that just helps us seem more human to our patients and, and removes barriers. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I'm just a big advocate for uh, tattoos, uh, as well as uh, <laughs> treating patients well. Uh, but just for those out there, well, I guess you're interviewing on Zoom this year, but um, for those who are interviewing, um, keep it traditionally professional. Uh, when you first meet people um, in uh, a medical context, I always wear my white coat or a full shirt and tie. Um, pro tip. All right. What, uh, what advice finally would you just give to, or what would be final words that you'd want to impart to somebody um, about the field of addiction medicine, its patients, uh, anything addiction related, uh, if you had like a minute or two to just tell them about what you do? No matter what field of medicine you go into as a medical student, you will touch these patients. Do me a favor, do your community a favor, treat them with kindness and respect because you'll be able to create a safer, healthier community for all by doing that. Awesome. Very well said. So I would say for anybody who has questions about the entire field, um, specific questions about research science, please send an email to uh, madison at info 
at insidetheboards.com. And throughout the series, we'll try to get those answered. Um, hopefully, uh, Dr. Poland, you'll be back and you can help talk, uh, uh, talk us through some pregnancy-related issues or other things. Um, if students want to learn more, where would you send them uh, for some education or to learn more about, I don't know, whatever you're interested in? <laughs> um, the professional organizations that have the most information would be the American Society of Addiction Medicine, where they can get free medical student um, membership. Uh, the AAAP, um, the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry, also has a lot of student-geared resources. Um, PCSS, Provider of Clinical Support Systems, um, also has a lot of free modules geared toward medical students, including an Addiction 101 module that's like 22 lessons long, but you can pick which ones you want. You don't have to go through the whole thing. Um, and then the last professional organization is AMERSA, um, A-M-E-R-S-A, and that is another multidisciplinary addiction uh, addiction group. But ACM has free membership for medical students. I, uh, I do a lot of work with them, so that's where I usually um, find myself finding information. All right, cool. We'll put a bunch of links in the show notes. So, all right, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me.